As 2023 comes to a close, we are taking the opportunity to look back at the year and revisit some of our interviews. We will hear from state and municipal leaders, nonprofit organizations, librarians, and historians. The Municipal Voice is a Connecticut Conference of Municipalities podcast in collaboration with WNHH LP 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Matt Ford. As always, be sure to give us a like and let us know what you're thinking in the comments. CCM's Municipal Voice podcast continues to present a key forum on important state local issues. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the consensus views of CCM or our member municipal leaders. First up, we look back to our interview with Secretary of the State, Stephanie Thomas, where we discuss the importance of voting. Secretary Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. <laughs> Good to have you. Um, so it's been almost 100 episodes and three and a half years on the Municipal Voice since we last had the Secretary of State on the show, which at that time was still uh, Denise Merrill, mm -hmm. uh, your predecessor. Um, and that was in a previous election cycle. So we were talking about voting access was important then, still important now. Why is voting so important? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> how much time do you have, Matt? <laughs> question. Why is voting important? I mean, it really is the underpinning of our democratic process, our system of government. Um, we have a representative democracy. So we as electors get to vote who will represent us um, at the table, so to speak. So having access to the vote and making sure that everyone who does has have access is using that vote, I think, um, without that our democracy is floundering yeah and speaking of making sure everyone's using that right um you know our members of ccm are municipal leaders of the towns and cities across the state and this next election is going to be a municipal election um <clears throat> and generally these elections get a turnout under 35 percent yeah what is the connection between the you know the popularity and quest for greater access and the fact that we have such a low turnout year after year you know, I think about low turnout a lot, but I think it is because we as a nation don't really invest in civic literacy. When, you know, I look at what's done at the federal, the state and the local level, no one is really investing in helping uh, voters carry out this most important civic duty. Sure, there's some education depending on what state you're in and what grade you're in, but in general, I just think it's woefully lacking. And mm -hmm. I think voters have gotten a bad rap in some ways, like they don't care. Um, so they're not showing up in uh, municipal election mm -hmm. years. And there may be some of that, but I also think they aren't well informed. And what a lot of registrars will tell me is if people aren't sure, that also keeps them from the polls. Mm -hmm. If they don't feel informed about what's on the ballot, um, how the system works or what they might face when they get there. That is a, another way of um, preventing uh, full turnout, if you will. Um, I also believe we have highest turnout in presidential years because, mm -hmm. face it or not, whether we want to face it or not, we are a very sort of television-based mm -hmm. culture. And the airwaves are flooded for sometimes as long as a year <laughs> um, with ads reminding people that an election is coming. And even when there is a gubernatorial election, for mm -hmm. example, you saw that last year here mm -hmm. in Connecticut. 
But for municipal elections, no one can afford to go up on television. So yeah. I talk to people all the time who have no idea that there's a primary coming up in September. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they know there's an election, but they don't really have it started on their calendar. Yeah. Um, so I think we as government can do a lot more to help um imbue voters with the confidence uh, to mm -hmm. want to know when elections are and what they can expect. Um, so that as a government, you can do that stuff. And then is there some stuff more specifically that your office can do to help uh, drive those numbers up? Sure. Um, our office is trying to partner with as many organizations as possible who are as interested as we are in providing nonpartisan information to help voters understand how to engage with our democracy. Um, one program that we started, we call it our CEO program, and it mm -hmm. stands for Civically Engaged Organizations. Um, and um, I'm a business owner. As you know, we also deal with business services here. Um, and it occurred to me that all the businesses I know um, involved with their community, whether it's donating um, to Little League or doing an Earth Day cleanup. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if they also got involved with civics, letting their customers or clients or employees know um, when an election is coming up, how to register to vote, how to find your polling place. Um, and I have had at least one municipality reach out to me about joining the program mm -hmm. as well. And I think that would be a great way to partner with CCM's members, mm -hmm. um, you know, because if it, I feel if you keep it top of mind, it's more mm -hmm. likely to happen. So our office puts together nonpartisan tools like simple social media slides, uh, fact sheets, like right now, mm -hmm. the big thing we're working on is a college 101 because yeah. college students don't know what to do. So it would be great if municipalities joined uh, our CEO program and help get help us get the word out. Very cool. Well, uh, some of them might be listening right now, so maybe maybe they will. <laughs> I think it's uh, important you mentioned that it's nonpartisan, and that that's good to remember is that you know it's yeah. not about which side of the issue on that. Everybody should vote. Every you know it's good for everybody. You're not just trying Absolutely. to encourage one side or the other. Every, everybody vote your conscience. Um, so you spoke at this year's Representation Matters, which is a uh, CCM program where we do a two-day training with the campaign school at Yale that was aimed to help uh, people of color seek office, serve mm -hmm. boards and commissions. Um, and you spoke about your path to elected office and how unlikely it seemed you know, at every turn. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I always tell people, don't do it the way I did it. Um, but um, the way we did it, you know, on paper, it shouldn't have worked. Um, but it was very organic. And what I do say is that people should follow their passions. Um, mm -hmm. I had a long career in the nonprofit sector. I was very happy doing that work. I was running my own fundraising consulting firm mm -hmm. um, and doing quite well. And it wasn't until um, I started meeting some people locally, going to meetings mm -hmm. and finding out how things worked. And I, I think 
I never considered myself someone who would run for office or get mm -hmm. involved in what I called politics. Although now I would say it's getting involved in governance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it just, I thought I was doing the public good in the nonprofit space, but I saw a need. I saw that there weren't a lot of people um, who were like me. And mm -hmm. some people think I mean as a woman or as a woman of color. And I do mean those things, but I also mean as an nonprofit professional, mm -hmm. you know, I would sit at a table and hear people discuss a problem. And I would say like, hey, the nonprofit solved this problem, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, you didn't know that yeah. this was the best way to handle it. And people didn't know sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so I ran for office. Um, I petitioned my way onto the ballot um, because I had passed the convention dates. Mm -hmm. And I ran um, what I like to describe as a very organic um, last minute um, campaign. Uh, I really got started uh, very late summer. And I lost that election mm -hmm. but only by a few hundred votes, which I considered a win. And then I decided to run again for different reasons. Um, and I won. And then I decided to run for secretary because it was a job that mm -hmm. really appealed to me. Um, it was not the sort of, I don't know, luster of serving at the constitutional level. Mm -hmm. But two of my passions are civic engagement, civic education, and making sure people vote in every single election. Yep. Um, but I also love business because I'm a small business owner and I worked for a small business um, for 20 years prior mm -hmm. to that, opening my own. So uh, I felt like the secretary's office involved both things that I love. So I yeah. applied for the job and here I am. And here you are. <laughs> so it sounds like, you know, in your, your previous nonprofit work and then in, in what you're doing now that, as you mentioned, civic engagement is a, a large part of that. What is your vision for civic engagement? Oh, you know, I I think at its core, my vision is to encourage people to think differently. I would love to get to a point where there was federal and state investment in civic education and civic engagement. Mm -hmm. um, I tell when I speak with groups, I often talk about um, especially high schoolers, for example, I say to them, like, do you play a sport? And almost mm -hmm. all of them <laughs> raise their hand. And I say, what if you played that sport one day a year? How good would you be? And they're like, oh, we would suck. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the same is true with our representative democracy. You can't just vote and like poof, like magic, everything suddenly works out. If you don't have, if you don't add the engagement piece, we're mm -hmm. only sort of half living. Um, so even people who vote don't think that they need to communicate to their representatives. I'm sure every town manager would love to know what their constituents think mm -hmm. and um, have issues brought up to them so that because they can't be everywhere. And the same yeah. is true with elected officials. So I my vision is to teach people um, what I like to call civics you can use, mm -hmm. <laughs> how to engage with your community. 
Um, one example, I was speaking with a group and a, like a 22 year old woman, I said like, who has had a problem in their town or their community that they want it solved? Mm -hmm. She complained about a huge pothole that was at the end of her parents' driveway and it drove her family crazy. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, well, what would you do about it? And she was like, oh, we don't do anything. I said, well, did you call the city and let them know the pothole was there? <laughs> And she's like, oh, no, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> and like, that's a little hanging um, example. But people just, I think, have gotten used to um, complaining and thinking that government is not there for them. And I mm -hmm. think people who govern are like, I wish people would give me some input <laughs> and let me know what some of the problems are. Yeah. Um, so my vision is that it's more of a two-way street and it's yeah. more community-based. Um, is, is that something that's more recent? Like were in the past, were people more civically engaged? You know, were there civics classes? And is that something that we should kind of bring back like in high school or something like you know, civics, yeah. history, English is another subject. Yeah, I would love to see civics reintegrated um, into education. Um, it did used to be taught. Um, anyone my age also remembers there was um, public broadcasting money to do things like Schoolhouse Rock. Mm -hmm. um, but um, when I talk to uh, seniors, um, they often talk about how, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, people 70 and over, like mm -hmm. I've never missed an election. I vote every time. And how come the young people don't feel yeah. the same way? But they had civics in school. And many of them also lived yeah. through wartime, mm -hmm. where there was much more of a national identity. And I think that has stayed with them. Yeah. Um, there was one piece of legislation I introduced this year that never made it um, through the process, but that is pre-registration mm -hmm. of 16-year-olds, because that's a time when many are um, interacting with the DMV, mm -hmm. so that when they're 18, they're already in the system and can be uh, confirmed and activated, yeah. because it shows if you... Um, have these civic lessons and um, think about it earlier in life, you're more likely to be a voter throughout the rest of your life. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, we revisit our spooky October episode with Jeff Bellinger. With decades of experience in the paranormal and spectacular, he's a writer for the hit show Ghost Adventures and an Emmy-nominated producer and host of his own show, New England Legends. Uh, can you tell us about the mythical Glowacus and its connection to uh, Connecticut journalistic history? Yeah, so the Glowacus is a great story. Uh, January of 1939, there was the Hartford Times and the Hartford Current. Those are the mm -hmm. two big papers in Hartford. And... Um, uh, the, the Hartford Times started to report that there was a strange creature that was uh, killing animals at some of the mm -hmm. regional farms. Absolutely newsworthy, important news. So other farmers could read, read and say, oh, I better keep a be a little more vigil right now. Mm -hmm. Of course, important. Uh, but then some of the eyewitness reports uh, started to come out of seeing this animal and they described it as like a black like puma. And of course, okay. pumas don't belong in Connecticut. Mountain mm -hmm. lions do show up in Connecticut, but they're never, they're not black. They don't, mm -hmm. they don't turn up all black. Uh, so suddenly um, people are describing this black thing, mm -hmm. uh, this black cat-like creature that's been hunting animals. The Hartford current um, sort of went off the rails with, with descriptions. So mm -hmm. what, what, 
went from like a puma-like creature to it's got the body of a, a dog and a head like a lion and a horn and it cries, cries blue tears. Like in the span yeah. of like two or three weeks, it went from an unusual black cat-like creature to uh, something you've never seen or heard yeah. of before. And they started calling it the Gloacus. And the more Gloacus reports that came in, they, Hartford Current started drawing maps. Hartford Times tried to be journalistic and the Hartford Current started selling advertising. So like one of my favorites, um, there was like uh, a gas station was saying, use SO oil uh, to, to get make a quick getaway from the Gloacus. <laughs> and um, there, there's an ad they ran of uh, a woman's hair salon that said, don't look like a Gloacus, get your get, get a permanent, you know, done here for mm -hmm. whatever, you know, whatever the money. And so over the span of like three or four weeks, the, the Hartford Current just went nuts uh, yeah. talking about, and the Gloacus, it sounds almost Latin, right? Like there's mm -hmm. this new animal. And then you real eventually it came through that a, an editor at the Hartford Current had named it for Glastonbury, Wacky, and us, the Gloacus. And uh, and and but the funny thing is, it, it, this this is folklore, right? Mm -hmm. In the span of four weeks, which is really traceable, right? You yeah. can go back four weeks. Going back 40, 50, 100, 200 years is difficult. Going back mm -hmm. four weeks is a snap. And so you watch it go from, hey, careful farmers, there's an animal lurking, killing animals, to weird, it's black, like a cat, yeah. doesn't belong around here, to lion that cries blue tears. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's almost like a chupacabra or something. That's right. Yeah. And so that was in the span of just four weeks. And um, and what I love about that is it's, it's not a yarn, right? It's a cautionary tale. Mm. And so if you're a farmer, you're probably not even sleeping anymore. But damn it, that thing's not getting any of my animals, yeah. right? You're out there with the shotgun all night long waiting. Watching out. Yeah. So it served a purpose. After about four or five weeks just plastering the news, mm -hmm. the most American thing that could ever happen happened. And that is everybody got bored with it and the news cycle moved on. It didn't <laughs> that, turn up. <laughs> there was it. It was there was over. no front page like, oh, oops, we were... there isn't one. It was just nope. oh, something else. They, there was to... one. The Wednesday the, Wild the, Man. The, well, the, they had the Wild Man, right? So, but there was a there was a Gloacus. There was an animal killing animals on farms, but mm -hmm. they just sort of moved on. The dead one. They didn't shoot it dead and say, "Here, we've got it." They didn't say it's moved on. It mm -hmm. just got bored and moved on with the next news cycle. Well done. <laughs> Good job, Gloacus. Yeah. This September, we spoke with Waterbury Mayor and former CCM President Neil O'Leary about his decision not to run after 12 years in office and lessons he's learned along the way. As you mentioned, you know, you've gotten a lot of things done, some things they're still working on. What's something that you learned on the job that you might have thought initially would be easier, but turned out to be an uphill battle or vice versa, something that you thought was going to be a lot harder than it turned out to be? Well, I honestly, I think that to be a successful mayor, one of the things you have to do is you have to build relationships with uh, certainly the state of Connecticut, both mm -hmm. your local representatives and your state senators. And I, uh, I credit CCM, uh, um, Connecticut Conference Municipalities, for teaching and mentoring all of us newly elected people uh, during their, our early years in office mm -hmm. and how important it is to build those relationships. And I was very fortunate uh, to build strong relationships with both Governor Malloy and our current governor, mm -hmm. uh, Lamont. And, and, you know, I considered both of them to be uh, huge mentors for me, quite frankly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that the challenge that most people have is uh, 
getting involved with really partisan politics. I think that's where it falls apart, right? Mm -hmm. So I, um, as a Democrat, um, I was lucky. So Malloy was a Democrat and Governor Lamont is obviously a Democrat. But Mm -hmm. uh, I learned the value of working with the Republican Party um, as well and getting things done for the city of Waterbury. In many occasions, I had built strong relationships with people on both sides of the aisle mm-hmm. and went to Hartford very, very frequently. I um, was a staple in the legislative office building, uh, you know, pretty much during the last 12 years of my office and and became fast friends with a lot of those uh, great people. Some of them are going on to retirement and uh, greener pastures, if you yeah. will, but you know, still uh, building those strong relationships. I think um, I thought it would be difficult, but it really wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be because yeah. people, they actually uh, elected officials really want to help cities uh, like Waterbury, and uh, especially uh, you know the leadership on both caucuses, both the Democrats and Republican caucuses have been very very helpful. Uh, over my 12-year tenure, but yeah. particularly in the last several years, we've really, uh, you know, enhanced those relationships. And, and you know, that has proven to be very helpful for the city in many different ways, from funding to uh, battling COVID to everyone uh, putting politics aside and doing what's right for yeah. not only our city of Waterbury, but quite frankly, for every other city and town in the state. That's where CCM came in on many different occasions. And of course, during uh, COVID, I mean, we all yeah. decided what was most important, and we and we worked together. And I think the that period of time made those relationships even stronger. Everyone had to work together. There was there wasn't a lot of other options. There were not a lot of options, and you know, there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of politics came out through that. Remember, Matt? So yeah. masks, no masks, in school, out of school. Yeah. Um, you know, parental um, anxiety over many of those issues. And I will always uh, credit uh, Governor Ned Lamont for his leadership during that really difficult period of yeah. time because he brought people together on every level and worked really well, uh, not only with the state legislature, but most importantly, he worked really well with the local officials. Yeah. And right. And so everything is politics is local. Right. And so, you know, it was the boots on the ground. The governor uh, visited not only Waterbury on numerous occasions during COVID, but most cities and towns throughout the state as well. And his presence made a big difference in quelling a lot of that anxiety that was coming during those period, those period of times, particularly the partisan politics. I think I think the governor taught us all a lesson that we all needed to work together. Yeah. And, build relationships and those relationships still last to, to this minute. You mentioned CCM. And one thing that's important to us here at, at CCM certainly was your time as our president uh, of the board of CCM. What was your experience as president? What was something that you got done as president that you're proud of? I have to tell you, I think, uh, by the way, I was the president for two consecutive years of CCM, which I thoroughly enjoyed. First of all, the staff at CCM is amazing uh, and hardworking and and very uh, knowledgeable. And so, and the leadership uh, was, was very, very helpful. And um, as the incoming president, I I enjoyed every minute of my time at the, for those two years. 
I think um, I think the thing that I enjoyed the most, quite frankly, uh, was you know at our meetings is you know making sure that everyone who everyone's concerns were addressed, right? Mm -hmm. To try from don't forget CCM makes up 169 cities and towns in uh, Connecticut, yep. from our very smallest communities to our largest communities, and the needs are very different, right? So the smallest community has a completely different set of needs compared to Harford, New Haven, uh, Bridgeport, and Waterbury, right? Yeah. And then you get, you know, get into your mid-sized cities. And I think what we try to do, and I think CCM has done very well and continues to do even before I became president and certainly since, is, is to make sure that uh, CCM itself operates in a very transparent manner. Mm -hmm. understanding that 169 cities and towns is not an easy task to keep people happy. Um, but I think that the leadership of those cities and towns recognize and understand that CCM is there to help and to yeah. advocate for the cities and towns uh, through the legislature and, of course, through the governor's office. And, and I think CCM has been very successful. Uh, and that's why the membership is so strong in, uh, you know, working really hard and diligently for our cities and towns and our residents of the state and, and forging really strong relationships with the, uh, the leaders of both the Democratic caucus and the Republican caucus and, of course, the governor's office. Yeah. One thing we always stress at CCM is uh, cooperation between towns and cities, regionalization in some cases. How important was collaboration to you personally in City Hall and in your region? Oh, very important. Right? And those are the things that you learn as a newly elected. You know, I joined the city of Waterbury when I got elected, quite frankly, was not part of CCM, which always was mm -hmm. very confusing to me. Um, so we joined CCM right away. And CCM provided a platform of good learning, not only uh, attending CCM, uh, events throughout the state of Connecticut, but also working with the U.S. Conference of Mayors throughout the country. Mm -hmm. uh, you can learn what's happening and what's important in your state, such as ours in Connecticut. But when you're a part of the larger picture, you can also learn what's important around the country and the challenges that each community faces. And most importantly, I think, Matt, you learn to collaborate with people yeah. and to understand each other's needs and, and try to figure out solutions instead of just piling on, if you will. So. Yeah. I think that's what I learned uh, most from uh, CCM. And I think, you know, the successful, uh, the successful picture uh, simply is transparency, um, commitment, compassion, um, understanding each other uh, and, and your need, understanding each other's needs and really trying as much as humanly possible, recognizing how strong partisan politics is, not only in our state, uh, in our country, but also recognizing that the real work gets done in a bipartisan fashion. And if you can really, you know, put all your egos aside and personalities aside, you can really get some really good work done, especially with a, you know, strong governor such as uh, Governor Lamont. Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, you are the longest consecutively serving mayor in Waterbury history. In our first episode of the Municipal Voice in 2023, we interviewed Courtney Renton and Nasima Gilson of City Seed, a nonprofit that runs a popular farmer's market in New Haven that connects folks in underserved communities with good quality local produce, allowing city residents to have a positive relationship with food resources. As you mentioned, one of the first things was the, the, the markets, and I think a lot of people at home might be familiar with the term food desert. 
which at certain times in the past, certainly New Haven has had areas that lack great food resources. Um, why is it important that uh, to connect New Haven residents with good quality local food through programs like the farmer's market? Yeah, so I think food access is really core to what CityC does and, and core to the founding of the organization when the markets first started in 2004. Um, there's been kind of an interesting shift within the food policy world of moving away from the term food desert and okay. thinking of them more as food apartheid. Um, and I think that's for a few reasons. One, mm. sort of recognizing that deserts are in and of themselves an abundant ecosystem. Um, and in that same way, kind of labeling any particular neighborhood or part of a city as a desert is ignoring a lot of the um, life and vitality that is mm -hmm. there, but maybe isn't um, captured or measured by traditional sort of forms of data collection or government agencies, um, but then also kind of understanding like the very human systems that can mm -hmm. cause a lack of access to food or a lack of um, of grocery stores in a particular neighborhood that there's like a real system at play in mm -hmm. that. And so um, this kind of term food apartheid has really taken off to um, just sort of recognize some of mm -hmm. those those shifts. So um, you know, it is very important for City Seed, both through our farmers markets and all the work that we do to think about access to food, mm -hmm. whether that's for customers who are purchasing food at the farmers markets, but also access to opportunity, whether that mm -hmm. is for the chefs who participate in Sanctuary Kitchen or the entrepreneurs in our program. Um, you know, all of our farmers markets uh, accept and double SNAP, otherwise known as mm -hmm. food, st food stamps, um, as well as WIC and um, senior programs. So we're really we were the first market in Connecticut to accept SNAP um, at the farmer's mm -hmm. market. So that's core to our DNA and um, really important part of what we do. Um, we've seen food insecurity rise with the pandemic. That's been a lasting legacy, even once um, COVID has felt like it's over, though we mm -hmm. all know that it's not. Um, so over the last couple of years, we've seen SNAP redemption at our markets double um, and continue to be on the rise, which I think is a really good indicator of um you know, the economic reality for a lot of families mm -hmm. in New Haven still in a way that we try to combat that. Um, and then we, we really like to think about core root causes. So mm -hmm. there's an amazing, amazing network in New Haven of kind of what we think of as like emergency food providers, mm -hmm. um, soup pantries, food kitchens, amazing food banking network. Um, our farmers markets are kind of a piece of that puzzle because yeah. people are able to spend their benefits at the markets. But then we really like to think upstream of what's causing this issue in the first place and really it's poverty wealth distribution access to opportunity and so that's where training programs like sanctuary kitchen um, and our entrepreneurship work really come in to think about how can we provide opportunity jobs the ability for people to control their livelihoods through food as this amazing yeah. tool for economic development upstream so all of our programs have a different kind of um, mm -hmm. approach to to food access and food equity um, in different ways and, and work together to make sure that people in New Haven are are getting access to local healthy food, which is a human right. Yeah. Uh, and you, you call it now, you're saying you want to call it food apartheid and you mentioned equity. I know at CCM, one of our recent efforts the last couple of years has been towards equity issues. And you mentioned, you know, that there's a lot of historical reasons. Is there a lot of correlation between what we now we're calling food apartheid and like historic like redlining and things like that. Yeah, I mean, this could be, I'm sure this is somebody's entire master's thesis or PhD thesis, right? Um, but absolutely, I think the same COVID in many ways just heightened awareness of 
inequity that was already prevalent in the system. And so I think we've seen that show up in housing, healthcare, certainly food security, um, job security, all these other issues. And, um, you know, City Seed is a unique organization in that we really look at the food system holistically. So, um, you know, we're talking about food access, we're talking about sustainable agriculture, we're also thinking about immigration, mm-hmm. um, health care, just all of these issues that um, I think have, as you pointed out, have been brought to light over the last couple of years. And I think the, the power is really in those intersections and those partnerships where we can um, you know, really think of the city level. We're yeah. talking about the city of New Haven um, and how we can make some systemic change. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, partners. Um, you partner quite a bit with local organizations and the city to help create kind of a positive ecosystem. What do you look for in a partnership with another organization? That's a great question. We love our partnerships. Um, you know, it's really one of the benefits of having been in the city for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been such an honor to be a steward of this organization and to, um, you know, enter into meetings and partnerships and hear people's stories about their relationship with City Seed over the years as it's grown. Um, we work really closely with the city of New Haven, um, mayor's office, economic development, food system policy division. Um, those partnerships are really integral into making all of our programs happen. Um, and then we've got amazing partnerships with, you know, lots of other um, organizations around the city. I'm sure Nasima will talk about Iris that has just been core um, to Sanctuary Kitchen. We work really closely with um, the Dixwell Q House mm-hmm. that just opened about a year ago um, in Dixwell to open a new, brand new farmer's market location there oh, cool. and new kitchen programming in that um, in that space. Um, we work closely with Collab, which is another entrepreneurship organization in the city. Um, I could go on and on. And I think, you know, New Haven is such a civically minded city, which is exciting. There's so many nonprofits mm-hmm. doing amazing work. So we really try to think about, you know, where can we be additive and not duplicative? How can we enhance each other's work? Um, what's another organization's core competency that, you know, they might do something differently than we do? Um, and how can we lift each other up, especially recognizing in a lot of cases that we're serving similar people? Um, so how can we uh, really make those connections and, and not always uh, reinvent the wheel, um, always with an eye towards, you know, equity and impact? You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. Back in March, E.J. Crawford and Brendan Toller of Westport Library and Verso Studios joined us for a conversation about the evolution of public libraries. Now, one of the more unique things and the reason we have you guys on today is to talk about uh, Verso Studios. And Westport Library is billed as the first public library in the country to uh, produce a vinyl record. Um, So how did Verso Studios come about? Was this like one person's pipe dream or was it just an idea that seemed good for the residents of Westport? How, How did this all come together? So we had incredible success, and this is before my time at the library, but they had incredible success with the Makerspace program, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. 3D printing. And there was a lot of attention and eyes on that. And they sort of found that they felt like they kind of peaked at a certain audience. So -hmm. they thought, well, how can we, we take this expansion in library services and resources and what could we apply it to? And um, rightfully, the executive director, Bill Harmer, uh, who comes from Michigan, and he's been with the library for about seven or eight years, uh, thought, well, media has kind of a limitless potential, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, production or theory or classes or the other side, just pure entertainment or uh, 
stepping into different perspective in sharing, you know, film screenings, performances. Uh, so we've been off and running that the transformation of the library, i.e. the renovation ended in about 2019. And then of course, we all know what happened then uh, after that. So it sort of feels like we're getting our footing right now. And yeah. um, so Verso Studios is open to everyone. Um, doesn't even matter if you have a library card, uh, although we'd love for, for you to have one. You should have one. So much of what Verso is, is, is reimagining, you know, what a library looks like for the 21st mm -hmm. century, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we have a community and that's, that's obviously in Westport, but beyond Westport as well, you know, that, that's, they're, they're seeking to kind of, you know, every library is all about kind of like growth and learning and knowledge mm -hmm. and, and, you know, kind of a shared community space. And that's what we really want, you know, the Westport library to be and, and books are such an important part of that, yeah. right? I mean, we have an incredible group of people who work here, reference librarians and patron services, and all that is incredibly important to who we are mm -hmm. and what we do still. But, you know, it's not the only thing that we do. And we yeah. also know that, you know, if we're going to meet people where they are, we got to be able to expand into other spaces. And having capability with Verso to do TV and broadcast and to do post-production and to have, you know, a full, like, sound system and, and to have all those capabilities really gives us so much more that we can provide to the community. Um, you know, and again, that's yeah. Westport community and beyond Fairfield County and beyond. So just kind of beyond the kind of older idea of libraries, just a place where you keep books. Like right. In, in, and now is. in 2023, what, do, what is a library to, to the public and what, do, what do, needs does it serve? I guess is part of the questions you're asking with the makerspace and Verso and these kind of non-traditional library facilities. Right. 100%. And we have like a library of things where you can come and rent, you know, a kayak or a microscope or, you know, mm -hmm. it's there's, you know, we have meeting rooms so that people can come and work. I mean, we, ha we have people, you can see the same people every day, people who just use our, our library as an office. We have computers you can rent. And so, you know, Verso is kind of the, the next kind of step with all that. It's kind of the, the, the logical progression. Uh, and, and we're fortunate to have the ability to do so. We're fortunate we, we did a, a major renovation in 2018, 2019 that allowed us to kind of build out these spaces yeah. to offer, you know, these services. And, you know, it also allows us to have programs and, and events that, you know, a lot of libraries can't. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you know, it allows us to host, you know, we can have a band on stage and 600 people in our forum, right? Yeah. You know, it's these aren't things that, you know, you traditionally think of a library being able to do, but it's things that, that we can do. And, I think that brings so much more to our community and, and gives mm -hmm. us so many opportunities. Municipal Voice is a co-production by CCM and WNHH 103.5 FM. Christopher Gilson is our producer, Harry Draws is on the boards, and I'm Matt Ford, your host. Be sure to check out our Facebook page and give us a like, and watch out for our CCM chat series on our YouTube page.